Hello, everyone. <clears throat> I'm here today, Naiswami Asha, talking to Zachary. Hello, Zachary. Hi, Asha. And Zachary is speaking to us from Kameno Island up in the Pacific Northwest, where they have a farm for Ananda of Nananda Farm. What do you actually call that farm there? Ananda Farm. Ananda Farm. Okay, that's a good name for it. Sometimes um, people call it Amanda Farm, but <laughs> they don't do that. On, well, they don't do that um, accurately. No. So, Zachary, tell us a little bit about who you were before you came to Master. Um, what what you were like as a child? Were you thoughtful? Were you active? What was your upbringing like? Uh, I grew up in Missouri, and uh, actually St. Louis, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel like I, in a lot of ways, I had the best of both worlds in that I grew up in St. Louis with my parents, but um, all my family and my parents are from the same small town in the Ozarks. So I kind of got to experience both the urban life and one hand where I lived, but then all my breaks every summer, every winter was in the Ozarks. So I got this really balanced perspective of urban life and rural life. Tell and me. Tell me what the Ozarks are. I mean, to me, it, it I, forgive me, I conjure up a hillbilly image. Is that correct or not? That's, yeah, that's absolutely correct. So, but, it, but, you know, in a lot of ways, it's really God's country. It's, um, it's, it's the nature there is so abundant with life. I don't even know anywhere that can quite compare to it huh. in terms of the abundance. And one thing that comes to mind is just that there's actual rivers of spring water pouring out of the ground. Uh -huh. uh, so these springs are the biggest waterways in the whole world of natural spring water. Just in the middle of the Ozarks, just here and there, you just drive up on them and there they are. So just that, those kind of things. So were your parents the first generation to leave the Ozarks for the big city? Uh, yeah, from, from their families, they uh -huh. were, yeah. So, uh -huh. how, how did they make, why did they make such a shift? Uh, I think in both of their families, they were kind of the more radical, uh, radical siblings in the family. So uh, my uncle Bruce would call them the city slickers. So they were always kind of leaving. And even when they were kids, they were headed out and going to the other towns and going to see the Beatles when the Beatles came through and that kind of stuff. So Ooh, they were the explorers. Yeah. For sure. huh. yeah. So did your parents, I mean, compared to their Ozarkian up, upbringing they were radical were they radical in the context of st louis or not uh yeah i would say even there they have their scene and they've got their they're just pretty radical people so they're still good my dad had my dad's always been an artist and then in the last 10 years or so he took up gardening uh -huh. and if you can imagine some incredible art garden fusion that's just full of thousands of flowers that's what his yard looks like now so huh, i got exposed to a lot of interesting things through my parents from a young age so how would you describe yourself as a child what were your interests um i like sports i uh you know I, my favorite thing to do was to be in the country uh -huh. i can remember like i would go be with my family for two months in the ozarks from the time i was three and then when i would come back i would Come back and talk like a hillbilly and i had no idea and my <laughs> friends would say why are you talking like that and i was you know five six years old and had no clue that i was even talking country uh -huh. but i absolutely loved being outside from as long as i can remember and being on the farms and in the woods and at the river so i think i had an affinity for 
nature from for as long as I can remember. Did you have any kind of a religious upbringing? You know, in that sense too, I was it was really balanced. My dad was a, a professed atheist. Uh -huh. My mom was always spiritual and actually always had this energetic power to blow things up. So she would flip light switches and always was blowing the lights in the house and no, wait, you. you're saying that rather casually. My mother had the energetic power to blow things up, like like houses and cars or... Like microwaves and televisions. And uh -huh. uh, from a, for as long as I can remember, she could always just touch things and some kind of energy would come through her that would explode things. So... That sounds like I, an expensive quality somehow. It was strange, but it was actually normal in our household. We were just not surprised at all anymore. And then all my family in the Ozarks themselves were evangelical. So I got exposed to Jesus through evangelical Ozark relatives. And I had a mixed bag with that. And uh, I felt like I did actually get to know Jesus when I was young until I was about 12 when I just revolted against the whole uh, Christianity of the Bible Belt. So. so when you say you got to know Jesus, do you feel like, you got to know Jesus in your heart or you just got to know what everybody thinks about Jesus? I felt like when I look back on it, I, I realized the presence of Jesus and I have memories of being in the church and singing the gospels and being in tears and, you know, experiences along those lines that were not really explicable to me as a child, uh -huh. but uh, where I actually knew there was a tangible presence. Huh. How interesting. It, so what yeah. happened to you when you were 12? Uh, my cousin who, my cousin, I was the little cousin. So, uh, mm -hmm. they were always, my two cousins I hung out with the most were seven years older than me. Mm -hmm. And I remember a conversation where my cousin said, uh, well, if you don't have, G if you don't take Jesus for your savior, you won't, you can't be saved and you go to hell. Mm -hmm. And that was about all I needed to hear. And I, I remember specifically saying, but what about the people in the other parts of the world that have never heard of Jesus? Is, it, is that fair that they would go to hell? Do you think Jesus would do that to them? And she said, Jesus will save you if you want to be saved. So uh, there's really no excuse. Mm -hmm. And that was basically the end of my interest in going to the church with them when I was 12, maybe 13. Did you feel bereft when you lost the church or did it matter um, I, you know, I wasn't identified with it personally because I had a dad who was atheist and he was also had virtues and good qualities. So I knew that there was not some absolute doctrine about being good and having to believe in some institution. So I, it was easy for me, actually, but it was harder for them that I just lost all interest in going to church with them. And well, because you also are going to be damned to hell and that's kind of a bad fate for a little You know, that, I think for a lot of them, when I moved to California, I, I was definitely damned uh -huh. to hell for the rest of my life. So, uh -huh. yeah. But, so yeah. What, what did you do then? So now you're 12 and you've, you're no longer worried about Jesus. So what happened in your life then? You know, I, I'd say from that point, I kind of went through transition years where I more or less had a normal uh, adolescence. Mm -hmm. I played sports, I hung out with friends, and I didn't have any kind of clear focus or direction. And I think that that, more, that went on through college and uh, through university where I was doing things, but not out of inspiration anymore. And did you uh, have, were you unhappy? Did that make you uneasy that you were just going through the motions like that? 
Yeah, I think in a subtle way. I don't know. I wasn't aware of it like many people. I think I was, I thought things were normal and I had my creative outlets and things that I would do. Like, uh, I just love to play basketball, actually. <laughs> but even when I stopped playing competitively, I just would still play every day almost. <laughs> and so I had things that I could do that would just free me still. And I knew that that was missing something. So I, that started to take the form of traveling at some point where I just wanted to live in different cities and experience life that way. You know, I want to, I'm going to back up for just a second. I've had sure. many men that I've talked to in this talk to me about how much they love sports. You're just telling me that every day playing basketball was enough to sort of give your life. So clue me into this. What's so great about playing basketball? Oh, man, that's a good question. Yeah, okay, well, what I actually loved the most was playing uh, three on three, which is half court. I did not imagine talking about this right now. But, uh, <laughs> there was a team element to it that was so much fun. And I had a few friends that we got really good playing together as a team. And there's a, a specific style called the pick and roll. Uh -huh. And we became convinced that we could beat almost anyone. Uh -huh. no matter how much better, bigger, and faster they were than us, using this strategy. Uh -huh. So we tested that almost everywhere. When we were in high school, we would sneak into the Washington University gymnasium and play the college kids just to see if we could beat them that way. And most of the time we did. Uh -huh. And uh, it, But it was just so much fun to have this, like, uh, to really try to master something. Okay. And in a fun way, you know, we weren't, it wasn't like we were, trying to win a state championship at that point. It was just totally for fun. So, and I think getting the energy going was a huge part of it, just being in a flow with life and feeling uplifted, so. Okay, well, yeah. that was a very good explanation. Thank you. So- you know, I haven't thought about that in at least 10 years, so. Well, you're, you're by no means the first person who said to me, so I played sports, so I played, you know, like this, and they say it to me as if I know what it means, and finally it occurred to me, I have no idea what it means. <laughs> Never being inclined at all that way myself. But Interesting, yeah. So, so then you began to think about traveling became your interest. So, so we go through life just taking it as it comes. It seems normal. Our, our creative and happy outlet is basketball. So then why did you suddenly need something more than basketball? <laughs> well, you know, I went to school, University of Missouri, and got a degree in finance. finance. School always came relatively natural to me in the sense that I didn't really ever have to focus very hard to, you know, be a straight A student and just get through it. But it also never really, it never held me. So I never felt really like school was my home either. I never felt any direction there. Right. Um, so then I, yeah, I just, I knew that if I made money, I would be able to figure the rest out, or at least that's what I told myself. <laughs> so I, I got a degree in finance. And from that point, I started moving around and was able to just get jobs in different cities and kind of experience life through by traveling and having money, essentially. So in the US, did you travel? Did you travel outside the US? Uh, the first place we went to was, uh, I say we, the first place I went to was uh, Dublin, Ireland. Oh, so you really, then, you stretched your wings right away. Yeah, I was ready. You know, I had grown up in Missouri and went to school in Missouri and I knew that there was a world out there that I didn't know about yet, so. So what was your first experience? How did it feel for you to be in an English-speaking country, but Ireland is not the Ozarks? You know, I love the, uh, the countryside, but Dublin itself didn't really enable me to change very much. Mm -hmm. it, was, 
the city culture of it still, I was more or less doing the same things. I was going out at night and, you know, going to happy hours and that kind of, but when I got out to the countryside, I could feel definitely a difference uh, just in terms of something awakening. Awakening and, in uh, you. Something awakening in you. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because it was Ireland and it wasn't the Ozarks? Or why, why, would, why would it work in you differently? Uh, I think more than anything, just connecting back to that source in nature again. That there's, there's this source of life that doesn't, isn't really predicated on human culture and mm -hmm. social happiness and right. economic happiness and all the kind of things of the world that we think are going to make everything okay. And do you think you were, I mean, do you really, do you think that like the nature spirits in Ireland are different than nature spirits in the Ozark? Were you actually meeting new consciousness there or was it just nature itself again? You know, I think for me, it's just, it's just the one nature and that's just the, the same spirit that is all pervasive. So I never really have differentiated it in that sense. Okay. So, so from Dublin, what did you do? So now you're you're getting back more connected with yourself but you do you continue in the same career for a while yeah i uh was able to get a job in philadelphia uh -huh. pennsylvania and was there for mm, maybe six months to a year and then with the same company was able to transfer to uh san francisco ah, and, so and then i and then i worked in california. Yeah. california yeah and uh -huh. i felt like really that was when things started to change I see. Uh, San Francisco was so expansive to my consciousness. The food, the diversity of people, just the culture was so much different than anything I had experienced anywhere else that it was exciting. So how old were you and what year was this? Uh, I was probably 23, oh. 22, 23. Yeah. And whatever that year would be. Well, I don't know because I don't know when you were born. I was... I was actually wondering what was going on in San Francisco at that time. So uh, it was about probably 2010, oh, 2009, something like that. So in any of this, your connection is with nature. Does it occur to you that God has any part of this? No, no, not at that point. You know, I really was not thinking about God at this point in my life at all. Do you feel like any of the experiences you had in nature were actually an experience of God, even if you didn't call it that? Absolutely, yeah. And so, it really kind of ratcheted up when I, when I was about 24, after about two years in corporate finance, I had what I have always thought of as a quarter-life crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just knew I couldn't go on playing this by these rules anymore. And I needed to try something else. And I didn't know what that was, but I knew everything had to change. And so, uh, I quit my job. Just, I remember calling my mom and telling her, mom, I think I just have to stop. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I can't do it anymore. And she could hear in my voice that I was serious, that I just needed to not do it. And it was for me, like putting my faith in the universe again, that something, something new, something would happen. It would be fine. Mm -hmm. And I would have to just put out energy and make it work. And I knew that. And from that place of Strangely enough, I moved to Los Angeles of all places, and uh, that is things strange. really took off there. Actually, what did you do in Los Angeles? If you, uh, 
a little bit of everything. That was part of what was so exciting was I had no expectations. I had no real personal aspirations for what to do. Mm-hmm. So I just started trying things as, and I, the first thing I did was I got jobs in production. Mm-hmm. So I just became a, basically a PA for commercial shoots. Uh-huh. And I would just get to work like a week or two really long days, like 18 hour days, and then get paid a big check at the end. And then I could take another month off and do whatever I wanted. And uh, it just gave me the freedom to breathe again and to really start asking, really not God yet, but asking kind of the universe and my inner self, what do I want from life and what, and what is really going to make me happy? And so when I started to have that space, things started to change and opportunities started coming. And so I worked in restaurants down there. I did, I did, a, I did testing. I was a test administrator. I just was doing anything and just trying it all. And it was really fun, actually, because I was free to do that. And at what point did God come into it? And at what point did Yogananda come into it? Great question. Yeah. Uh, well, Haley, Haley came into it first. And uh, she, she was, yeah. yeah, she was my buddy in San Francisco, and we had been friends for about a year, mm-hmm. uh, two years maybe in San Francisco, just really good friends. Mm-hmm. And when I quit my job, uh, she also had just graduated from University of San Francisco, so we spent about two months in San Francisco just without jobs, riding our bikes around the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, when she came to LA, she brought with her autobiography of a yogi. And uh, started exposing, and you know, the other book was Out of the Labyrinth. But Mommy's book. Yeah. yeah, Exactly. And you know, that really, I have to say, spoke to me at the time immensely. I have to to pause for a second. Swami Kriyananda loved that book, and so few people appreciate it. So I know from wherever he is in the cosmos, he's extremely happy to hear that Out of the Labyrinth was really important to you. Yeah. (laughs) It's. It's, it's a philosophical explanation of why life has meaning, correct? Mm-hmm. Tell me why it spoke to you. Well, that's exactly what I needed at the time because I was very much in my head and trying to figure things out. Uh-huh. And so to have just somebody walk me through the steps of consciousness uh-huh. so I could understand that there really was more to life. I knew inside of myself on a level, but the world was not telling me there was. Uh-huh. Uh, to have somebody who could just take me through a logical progression was extremely important and it just made so much sense that I finished that book and then I read it again right after just so I could make sure I understood the progression well enough and from that point I've never really needed to really approach life from a philosophical place at all again so it really released me in in a lot of ways. That's fantastic so then did you read autobiography at the same time or afterwards or how did it work? You know this all corresponded to uh, us leaving Los Angeles every probably every other weekend to go camping and so we would uh, go to Los Padres and to Malibu and eventually to the Sierras and when we went to the Sierras something happened inside of us that just said you're actually supposed to stay and you're not supposed to go back to Los Angeles which was really radical because uh, one of my best friends from Missouri was moving out to move in the apartment with us and everything was so lined up for fun in Los Angeles. But this feeling in the mountains was so tangible that was that actually said you're supposed to live here. And so within a week, the way Master works, we had gone back to LA and 
purchased a trailer that we need. Oh, we got offered jobs by the Forest Service while we were backpacking. I mean, I don't know how many people that happens to, but uh, <laughs> it was interesting. And we uh, went back to LA. We needed a trailer. So we got a trailer uh, from what I later found out to be the base of Mount Washington for $450, about one third of our month's rent. Uh-huh. And uh, we were off within a week and we ended up spending the next two you know, summer, spring, summer, fall seasons in the high country of the Sierras, wow. where our life really changed. So, so you mentioned that autobiography of Yogi was there. Had you become committed to Master? Did you accept that book when you read it? How did that go? You know, that was really, the mountain started working on us, and we had autobiography and Out of the Labyrinth with us. Uh-huh. And uh, it was really from that point that I would say, we were aware of Divine Mother, and that was what we would often say because we knew we weren't really making the choices anymore. It was clear that something was taking us places and introducing us to people. And we had teachers in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of them is still one of our great teachers to this day. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just clear that Divine Mother was now in charge. Mm-hmm. And so, but I knew that that, uh, that consciousness of Divine Mother and this awareness came directly from autobiography and from master and it just became so normal that we would just say well i think this is what divine mother wants and but you know at the time we still had very little association with ananda specifically it was all just through the books and through haley's mom who was a part of ananda in washington i see so how did you end up then at ananda what you came out of the mountains so we'll skip a little bit so how did you end up and where did you go Where did you start with Ananda and why? Yeah, so, uh, you know, towards the end of the second year in the mountains, we basically were feeling like we actually had to leave, which was, I would say, gut-wrenching. It was the hardest thing. The hardest single choice I've ever had to make was to leave the mountains, but we knew we were being called to leave. And uh, when we... When we left, Haley had been signed up to take yoga teacher training at Ananda Village. And simultaneously, we had made friends with a farmer in the mountains. So we were living on a farm in the foothills. And then she took the month-long program at the village. And uh, so I would visit her on the weekends during that. And that was was my first real, my my first personal exposure was through the village and through visiting. What did it feel like to you when you went to the village? Uh, you know, I, at that point, I loved nature, mm-hmm. and I was still very skeptical about people. <laughs> and so that first weekend I went, and I pretty much questioned everything. Uh-huh. And I wasn't totally ready to believe it, but I wasn't writing it off. I just wanted to make sure that it was actually real. And uh, so I went, and I experienced it the first weekend, and I had a lot of questions. And when I went back the next weekend, uh, something started to change. I remember they let me just energize with them as part of their YTT. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, I, and I thought, okay, this is really interesting. And we did like this super fast energization set in five minutes. Uh-huh. And I really liked it. Uh-huh. And then uh, Gyandev had done a, he did a three-hour Mahabharata, like, right. not, not a reading, just a storytelling. storytelling. And it went by in like 10 minutes. And Gradually enough of these experiences add up and Ananta, I got to see an Ananta Sunday service that I started to think this isn't just uh, a fluke. 
that this isn't just some cult out in the forest, that this is actually real. And then as soon as I crossed that threshold in myself of realizing that these people were sincere, I knew I can't walk away from this now. Mm-hmm. Now that I've seen that this is here, I will, I, I absolutely have to keep taking the steps that are put in front of me. And so it was never really in a, in a sense, something that was just totally obvious to me, but it's always been something that just step by step I take. Mm-hmm. And uh, once I realized people were actually dedicating their life to it, th- it, it awoke something in me that I could do this too, and I should support this also. And did, was Swami Kriyananda still living? What, what year was this? Yeah, that was probably 2000 and, uh, you know, I'm so bad with years, but 11, maybe. So did, 2011, you, 12. did, you, did you meet Swamiji that summer? Uh, it, I think it was the next summer uh-huh. that we came and uh, met Swami during the Finding Happiness filming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was when I met you. Yes, that's and, right. On the set yeah. house there. And so, you, I had great memories of that, actually, still. Yes, me too. Um, so what... Did Swami Kriyananda make an impression on you? Oh, man. You know, uh, it's a little unique in the sense that I think with Haley, they Haley had written him a letter about Out of the Labyrinth. Uh-huh. And so they had a very personal connection kind of right off the bat from that. But I, I didn't feel that in myself. And um, I think there was such a wave of energy around him at the time. And it was also new to me and that I was not drawn personally in like that. And I kind of stood on the sideline and observed. And, um, you know, I had people like you come up and show me great kindness amidst that when I was still really feeling out what is this place and why are people treating him like a king? And so it, it didn't really make sense to me still right here, but I was still willing to be there in my heart and, so uh, there was nothing to speak of personally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I felt very much how that's still been our relationship in a lot of ways where it's not very personal, but the truth and the consciousness that's there, I, you know, it feels so personal to me and not in a personality kind of way, but in a, in a, in a it's inside of me kind of way. And so, so so skepticism has gone away it's just you have your own way of relating would that be the way to say it i think so and i think it's always just been you know for whatever reason more just on a consciousness plane and not in an outward way right well, that's, and, that's the truth yeah. of it so you know the body is very very short-lived compared to the influence of the consciousness you know one little incarnation but the life the power of the life goes on. Yeah. Already his out of the labyrinth took you out of your mind and onto the path. So, I mean, that was, that was his service to you regardless. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And that book and was a huge effort on his part with deep commitment. He was thinking of you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I feel that in your book too, you know, just how closely connected I feel to him through the thoughts that and the feelings that he put out there for all of us but not necessarily in a personal you know I know Swami kind of way but in the universality of what he shared for everyone it's like I there's not much separation that I feel in that sense 
Well, that's that perfect because that's his own, that's his self-definition. The other was so superficial, it didn't make any difference. Everybody has to have a personality, but it's the consciousness. Mm. So I'm going to have to skip way to the end right now because oh, okay, we only sure. have a few more minutes. So how did you end up at Ananda Farm on Kameno Island? Well, you know, that was just another Divine Mother thing. We absolutely knew we were supposed to be farming, which, you know, I have a degree in finance and Haley's got a degree in philosophy. So I guess that made two farmers. <laughs> right. and, uh -huh. The dominoes literally just fell all the way up to Washington where we talked to Glenda and uh, she, that's Haley's mom, and she was a part of a group of about 20 investors who were trying to pull money to buy land to buy a farm. Uh -huh. And uh, so we came up here and we met Freeman and Padma and immediately had a great rapport with them. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, it, it was just written. And it took, it was, everything has been a process. So when I say that it was written and it was Divine Mother thing, it does, it's not to say that it came easy or there wasn't growth along the way. Uh -huh. It's just to say that when I look at it, it was just also clearly the next step. And uh -huh. so we were able to help find the property on Kameno with uh -huh. the group here. And we moved here in 2012. 2012, that long ago already, eight years. Yeah, this is the eighth year. Amazing. Well, there's a great deal we could talk about about farming, and maybe we will at another time. But I think this is the story that we can tell today. Great. Thank you, Zachary. That was exceedingly interesting. Oh, good. I had no yeah. idea. From finance to farmer is who you are. Something <laughs> like that. What a yeah. What an interesting um, <clears throat> multitude of experiences, my friend. Well, God bless you and God bless all the good work that you're doing. Thanks, Sasha.